The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, aka Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. This interview was recorded on May 16th, 2020. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI recent graduate, Caitlin Faye Antonios. While at UCI, Caitlin was all things media related. She was very involved at KUCI Radio, was on the school newspaper, and majored in English slash writing slash journalism. We'll hear more about that. Last we heard, she is in New York City's Manhattan attending graduate school at Columbia University. And it seemed like a perfect time to catch up with Caitlin to hear about life after UCI and how she has fared during COVID-19. Welcome, Caitlin. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. You know, before we get into current events, can you tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and how you got interested in writing and media? Sure. I grew up in Orange County. When I went to UCI, I commuted most of my time there and stayed close to home. I come from a very science-y family. My brother and my dad are doctors. My sister's a lawyer. And I just really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I liked to write. I knew I was interested in English and literature. That was always my favorite subject in school, in high school. But it wasn't until UCI that I started, you know, trying to find my space on campus, obviously. I mean, I went to a public school for high school, but it was pretty small, especially going to like a big university like UCI. And I just needed to kind of find my place on campus and sort of branch out and just happened to see an email for the school newspaper and decided that I would go check out their open house. And I walked in and heard about what I would be doing if I applied to be an intern for the newspaper. And it just sounded like it was something that I would be interested in and something that would be exciting. And I decided to go for it. And it set me on my journalism path. When were your years at UCI? 
I graduated last June, so 2019, and I started in 2015. Did you have a favorite writer growing up, and has that person changed? Definitely changed. I think the first piece of literature that I really fell in love with was a series of unfortunate events. I remember being in fourth grade. I hated reading, which is so funny now. But my teacher in fourth grade, his thing was getting kids to read. And he was so confident that he could find me a series or a book that I would just like want to devour. And he did. He had a library in his classroom and like kids could just go up and, you know, didn't have to do the whole formal checking out from the library. He just gave kids free reign. So I picked up Series of Unfortunate Events, the first one, and I don't think the final few books had come out at the time, or maybe it was just the last one that hadn't come out. I don't know, but I devoured what was there in the series, and it just made me realize that reading's really cool and a really good way to pass time. So that was my first encounter with, I still think, really good literature. Do you recall the author's name? Daniel Handler is his real name, but he writes under Lemony Snicket. That's his pen name. Is he still writing under that name? That's a good question. I think I'm on his Wikipedia page now. Um, It doesn't seem like he's come out with anything super recently under that name. I I know um, my kids were growing up during those years, and I know my son used to read those books. uh, Yeah, they were... Great. And they're pretty, I think what I really liked about them was they were just, they were kids book, but they dealt with a lot of serious issues. The main characters are orphans. They're dealing with grief. They're dealing with a very inefficient system. They're dealing with innocence and lack of innocence. And I think they're really impressive books. I would definitely recommend them. And I think I read them at a good time. I was in fourth grade and I think that was like a good age to start Mm -hmm. thinking about those kinds of topics. And you said that your favorite has changed over the years? Yeah, well, now I just read different types of things. I mean, I still read fiction for fun. Like, I'm reading the book's called Normal People. The author is Sally Rooney, which I'm really enjoying. But for the most part, I read nonfiction. And for, at UCI, I was specifically studying literary journalism. I still read a lot of literary journalism. I read a lot of classic literary journalism, people like Tom Wolfe, Joseph Mitchell, both of whom I was exposed to and started reading because of a professor at UCI named Barry Siegel, who we both know and love. Favorite author now? I've been reading a lot of Joan Didion recently. She's probably my current favorite. That's a very like typical literary journalism answer, I think. Joan Didion's name comes up a lot in writing circles and I haven't read any of her things. What stands out for you for her that strikes you? I think for me, it's just, she's so like, she's been described as very cold and callous, which I have no opinion about, but I think her writing is just very in your face. This is what it is. This is what's going on. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what you should be seeing. I just think it's very unrelenting. She's a very intense reporter. (laughs) But she also has a beautiful mastery of language. I mean, her writing is beautiful to read. It's just also very 
at least in my opinion, very in your face and very raw sounds like it's emotional, which is kind of not, but it's just very unfiltered. Maybe is a better word. Gotcha. Did you have a favorite class at UCI? Yes. Well, I was very lucky. I honestly don't think I had a single bad professor at UCI. I got very lucky in both the English department and the literary journalism department. I mean, I don't think there is a bad teacher in the literary journalism department, but I just got very lucky. I really enjoyed all my classes, all my professors. I was able to form really good relationships with them, which I think is pretty rare in such a big university. But Barry's class will always just be in my mind. I should explain, Barry teaches for all the literary journalism students an ethics of journalism class. So we basically go through the early years of literary journalism, kind of how it's evolved, more current pieces that you would see like in the New Yorker. We also had a TA at the time who was co-teaching the class with Barry named Rebecca Schultz. And she was from the MFA program. So she kind of brought in her fiction tools and tips and merged exactly what the literary journalism program is, which is nonfiction merged with creative writing techniques. So it was just like an amazing, it just changed my whole entire view of journalism, what journalism can be, the role of journalism. And then we also discussed all the ethical issues that are more important now than ever to be talking about. And I think what I really appreciated about Barry was that it was a large class. I mean, I don't know exactly how many people are in that class, but like I would guess at least 50. We were in a big lecture hall, but it was really a very discussion-based class. So people were voicing different opinions. Barry always encouraged that. I think he looked to me sometimes because we would have to do like reading responses. So he always knew if the conversation was going one way and I had a different opinion, he would always pick on me to hmm. kind of voice that and bring a different dimension to the discussion, which I really appreciated because it's intimidating. If you're, if you, you know, he asks a question, you hear everyone saying one type of answer or agreeing with each other to feel comfortable enough to say, well, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. And that's a skill that is really important to develop. And I'm very grateful that I developed it in his class where it was a very, you know, safe environment. Cause now definitely I've find myself feeling more comfortable if I don't agree with something or I have a different idea in like either a group project or even with an editor now when I'm talking and you know they're saying one thing about the story and I have a different opinion about how the story should go being comfortable voicing that so that was a very pivotal class for me and I got to take it in my sophomore year usually people take it in their junior year I was able to take it my sophomore year which I think really helped me in the next two years, develop my writing, develop my thinking, and just elevate my ideas further. Gotcha. Did you have any favorite moments at KUCI? I know you had several programs. Yeah, man, I had so many great moments at KUCI. KUCI really was, I was so lucky at UCI because I had my group of people that I was really close with at the newspaper. I had a group of people that I was close with from class. And then KUCI, I had another group of people. And they were just the most wonderful. I mean, I really enjoyed teaching the training class. That was a really fun way to meet new people, to 
understand the material myself better um, mm-hmm. and understand, you know, FCC regulations and the tech, even though we don't teach you a ton of tech in the class, I mean, knowing the soundboard, being really familiar with the soundboard. And I think just, yeah, just seeing how people's relationships develop in the class, seeing how by the end of it, you know, if they stayed through the whole eight weeks, just seeing them be more comfortable, hearing their shows. I mean, that was always really fun because I knew them from the class and then seeing them actually on the radio, crafting their show, working on their show was a whole different experience. So seeing that growth was really great. Yeah, so I mean, teaching the class definitely was probably my favorite part. I have to admit, Caitlin, my Caitlin moment from a few years ago was, well, I substituted, I, you had like a sports talk show with a... Yes, with, a, with John. Yeah. yeah, what was the name of that show? John and Kate Deliberate. Yeah, yeah. And so I subbed on it, which was fine. And then somehow, I think we did a joint program about sports. And, you know, I got to admit, I was a typical guy. And did you play much sports when you were younger? No, I was not a sports yeah, person, you know, like player you're, you're at si- all. Si- and your size, you know, you're not the tallest person in the world. <laughs> so your size wouldn't indicate. But we got in this talk show about sports. Not that I'm the greatest sports guy ever. Definitely not. But you totally held your own. I mean, you knew players. You knew time frames. And I was just like, holy moly, I better not go to sleep here. Uh, thanks. Yeah, you know, my love of sports, funny enough, comes from my love of journalism. When I started getting into journalism, I just didn't want to be reading only the things that I was interested in. So I started reading sports articles. And I genuinely believe that sports writers are often the most talented writers. I just think there's something about sports. There's something about the ideal, you know, and I'm not talking about game recaps. I'm talking about like features and profiles and, you know, even obituaries of players that have been written by sports writers. I think they just have a beautiful grasp of language, of life. I think sports really does teach a lot of really good life lessons. And so I just started getting into reading those types of stories. My brother's a huge sports fan. I mean, he's one of those guys that just knows statistic after statistic after statistics. And he's just always been like that. Like his brain just grasps that kind of stuff so easily. So I just started watching more. It started with basketball for me. Then I went to Cambridge for a summer to do study abroad. And it was during Wimbledon. And then I got really into tennis. And then it just kind of sort of grew from there. And John, the reason John and I knew each other was because he was the associate sports editor at the newspaper. Mm-hmm. So me and my, and I at the time, I was the opinion editor in our cubicles when we still had like a real newsroom and, and cubicles. Our cubicles were right next to each other. So we were always just chatting on production day, which was the day that we did our layout for our print paper when we had a print paper. And we were just always chatting. And then he wanted to get into UCI because he really liked the idea of talk shows. So he took the training class. I don't actually remember if I trained him or not. I don't think I did. I think he was before I became, maybe I was an assistant. I don't know. Um, But anyway, so we had like kind of the newspaper and KUCI together. And then we decided that we would, we had pretty easy conversations. We figured we could put that together into a show. 
if we pick topics that were interesting. And we didn't want to just do show recaps. We more wanted to talk about big news stories, what our thoughts are. I would have loved to do a show with John talking about COVID and what's going to happen with the future of sports, because I think that would have been really fun. Wow, interesting. Excuse me just for a moment, Caitlin, for an audience update. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI graduate from last year, Caitlin Antonios, and she's now at New York City's Columbia University in graduate school, and we're just catching up on her life and I'm going to touch in a little while about COVID-19. Caitlin, when I was doing a little bit of research before the interview, I did notice that one of your big moments was being a beat writer for the day for the Clippers. Do you remember much about that event? Yes, that was a really fun experience. I was, I think it was my sophomore year at UCI. And I just saw, I think it was probably on Twitter, I saw that the OC Media Group, I forget what the publisher's name that that comes out with the OC Register, was doing a beat writer for the day. You had to do a really quick submission. You just put your name, your school, if you're a student, and then why you love sports, why you are interested in journalism, and kind of what your hopes and dreams were in the future. And at the time, I really did consider going into sports journalism. So it seemed like a really great opportunity and I submitted it and it happened two weeks later and I sort of forgot about it. And then I got a phone call from one of the sports editors there who said, congratulations, you won. You can come spend a day with Dan Wojcicki, who was at the OC Register at the time. Now he's at the LA Times. He's actually the national NBA reporter at that times right now, but at the time he was at OC register. And so it all happened very quickly because I think the game was either the day after I got the call or maybe the day after. And so I ended up going with Juan Gonzalez, who was the managing editor of the newspaper and sort of also used to be involved with the sports section and was still pretty involved with the sports section. So him and I became friends that way. And him and I went, And it was a great experience. They really did do everything they could give me the same experience. We went to the media room. Dan Wojcicki met us, was super kind and generous with his time. We walked around to where they have the cubicles for writers on deadline to finish up their stories after the show. He talked me through his process. During the game, we sat in the media section So then we did a press conference. I got to ask Doc Rivers a question, and he knew that I was from UCI, and his youngest son was also at UCI, so he kind of already knew that. I'm I'm sure somebody from the Clippers staff told him that. And he was very nice. They did a video. I met Jamal Crawford on the court, who was very sweet. I think he asked me what my favorite Clippers lineup was, and it felt really awkward to not say the current team. (laughs) I can't even remember if they won or lost. But then I got to write a story about it, which was really great. Kind of just sort of sent it in. They edited it and then re-uploaded it onto the website. But I think it also made it into the print paper, which was cool. So when did you start thinking about graduate school? My time at UCI was coming to an end. And I just didn't, I didn't really know what my options were. I thought about starting to apply for 
jobs and internships and newsrooms, but all my clips for journalism, I mean, aside from a few of my new university clips, which were shorter, most of my like really heavily reported stuff was very long because they were all literary journalism pieces. You would get 10 weeks to work on one story and it would be like, I don't know, 2000 words, which most news organizations aren't really looking for. So I was just kind of worried about my, what my options were. I talked to Barry, who is an alumni from Columbia, and he recommended that I start looking into those programs and consider that option. And I had already kind of started thinking about it, but I had been told that a lot of people don't go to journalism grad school right out of college. They usually wait a couple of years and then apply, but... I just felt like I still wanted to learn more before I started really trying to be aggressive in the professional field. So I looked into different programs, applied to a few of them. The one that I was really interested in was Columbia's investigative program. So I'm getting my master's of science, but I'm also doing kind of like a specialization in an investigative program, the Tony Stabile program. So I was really interested in that. And I also felt like that was a good way to take my long form literary journalism techniques and tools that I learned at UCI and apply them to more heavily reported and investigative pieces. So I applied and I kind of was just waiting to see what happened and kind of willing to go with the flow. And luckily I was accepted into the school and then also into the investigative program, which is what I was really hoping for. And so I decided to to do it, to move to New York. And it's only a one-year program, which I also really liked because I didn't want to be in school too, too much longer. I just wanted to feel a little bit more equipped before I started applying to jobs. And I felt like a one-year program here would do that. Gotcha. So are you getting ready to graduate? Yes, I graduate in four days. <laughs> Holy moly. Well- Wow, what a privilege. Thanks a lot for making time for us. Oh, yeah, no worries. Of course, thanks for asking me. Well, please, can you describe what investigative journalism is and can you give us a couple of gems of what you've learned? Sure, yeah. So the investigative program at Columbia is taught by an incredible journalist. Her name's Sheila Coronel, and she is just the most incredible woman ever Everyone should look her up and see all the amazing things that she's done. Um, She's a journalist from the Philippines, and she's taken over the investigative program. I think she helped start it as well. And um, the first things that we were taught were kind of the tenets of investigative journalism, which is that it's shedding light on some sort of abuse of power, Um, as a result of this abuse of power, there has to be some kind of harm. And to some degree, it has to be systematic. So it can't just be like a one-off situation Um, for it to be truly worthy of like an investigative piece or investigative reporting. It has to be a widespread systematic problem. Mm. Um, So those are kind of the main tenets. What I've learned or a few things I've learned, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned is that oftentimes people don't totally understand what a journalist's job is. And so 
I think I've learned that when I'm starting to talk to a source, you know, really explaining, I think there's this idea that journalism kind of has to be very like under the cover of dark. And of course there are times when journalists have to be more secretive and more guarded about what they're doing. But a lot of times doing the opposite actually is what gets people to talk to you, which is being open, being honest, being, you know, just, just coming into an interview with zero assumptions about what you're going to hear, what this person's going to tell you, what their story is, what their perspective is. And so it's a lot of checking yourself and just making sure that you're not coming into anything with preconceived biases, or if you are, at least you're aware of them and you can kind of counteract that. And yeah, and I think people are much more I mean, just being like human and approaching them as another human instead of just going after the story or, you know, being abrasive, I think is a much more, I don't know, I think people think that journalism is like very um, like aggressive. And I think sometimes it can be and with certain people you need to be. But for the most part, it's a much subtler, gentler approach, I think is a more successful way to go about it. So I think that would be the biggest lesson that I've learned. You're about to graduate. What are your plans at this point? Well, like every other industry, the media industry right now is not um, doing very well. There's been a lot of layoffs, a lot of cutbacks. So entering the job market right now is not super ideal. I have just recently started applying to places because, at least for jobs, like they want people to start soon. So I didn't want to apply too much before my graduation date so that I would be actually available to work. So yeah, I just sort of have started sending out applications and having my fingers crossed. I don't have any real plans. I mean, I'm definitely, if I don't find something immediately, I'm definitely going to just be freelancing Thankfully, there are some places still have a freelance budget and are willing to take pitches. So yeah, I've just been kind of doing my research on which publications those are, what kind of stories they want. For my classes, I've been working on a COVID story that I'm thinking of pitching somewhere. So yeah, I'm not totally sure yet. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. How about location-wise? Are you going to stay in New York until something comes up or are you going to move? I'm not totally sure. It just depends on where my job, if I get one soon, is. I haven't seen my parents forever since like December. So I definitely want to go home and visit. I'm just trying to be cautious and smart about whether or not I should do that. So yeah, I'm not really sure. I definitely wouldn't mind staying in New York. I'm not dying to get out. But I'm also not super tight. I mean, I know people in my program who are like, I'm staying in New York and I don't want to work anywhere else, which is not really my perspective. I love California. Ideally, I would love to report in California, report on issues going on in California. You know, obviously I know I I lived there my whole life and I know it very well, both North and South. (laughs) So I would love to be back in California, but it really just is, is a matter of jobs and money and that kind of thing right right now. Excuse me, just for one minute. 
If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI graduate, Caitlin Antonios. She is just completing a graduate program in investigative journalism, literary journalism at Columbia University in uptown Manhattan, New York City, and is literally graduating within a few days. And we're going to start to talk about now her experience in New York City over the last year, and then the huge turning point with COVID-19. Caitlin, how have you enjoyed New York? I really love it. I think at first I was just kind of staying in my borough, staying in my neighborhood, you know, I would go to the grocery store here. I would go to the movie theater here. I would, you know, just kind of stay in my area. Um, And I would go out with friends, you know, Friday nights, Saturday nights downtown and kind of do like day trips to Brooklyn. Um, But I was always kind of waiting for people to go with. And then I realized that New York is a very accessible place to go and do things on your own. So kind of once I realized that right before COVID, actually, I was just going out by myself all the time, just all over town. I got really familiar with Queens my first few months here because I was beat reporting at the Queens courthouse. So I knew Queens pretty well, or at least the courthouse area. And I kind of started to understand the geography based on just cases of like where stuff was happening. So I kind of got to know Queens through my reporting Brooklyn has a very, I'm Lebanese, and Brooklyn has a very large Arab population. So I would start figuring out like, oh, this is where I should go to get certain type of groceries. And, you know, it was like a long trek. It was like two hours to go to a grocery store. But I started to discover like, I don't just have to like go somewhere and rush back home. Like I can take my time and really explore. And even if I'm by myself, I can do that. And so, yeah, I, I really started to to love it and enjoy myself. Obviously, since COVID, I have not been <laughs> taking the subways or going very far, but I still go out for walks and I still continue to take in my area as much as possible. Gotcha. As a journalist, when did you notice the coronavirus was a potential story? That's a really good question. I was following the New York Times coverage of what was going on in China in January. And I sort of was on the, fe- like, I wasn't really sure, like, if this was going to be, like, a SARS scenario where it was, like, really big and in different parts of the world, but kind of never made its way over. Once the first case was confirmed in New York, I knew it was going to explode. So that did not surprise me at all. I mean, the first case was in Washington. I mean, I knew that there was no way that in Wuhan it exploded in the way that it did and the cases kept rising and it wasn't going to contaminate people here in the same way. But I think any pandemic is a story. So once you know, you know, I I never really bought into the idea that, oh, it flu kills more people. It's not as bad. I think anytime there's (laughs) a virus, um, it's a, it's a story. I think it's going to be hard to know what kind of stories to really tell about the virus until things start to get better, which is kind of unfortunate, and you kind of have to do some retroactive reporting. Columbia, Derek Kravitz and the Brown Center here at Columbia have been doing kind of mass freedom of information requests 
that other publications have started using to, to write stories. So there's been stories in like Washington Post based on some FOIAs that Columbia came out with that officials knew about what was going on back in January. ProPublica has been doing some really great stuff about ventilators and money and what's going on with that. So reporters, I think, are doing a really good job. I just think a lot of the like big stories that are eventually going to come out are going to have to be retroactive because right now things are at you know such a standstill and you can file as many freedom of information requests as you want, but actually getting anything back that you can use is going to take a while. So mm-hmm. I know as I was reporting and interviewing people, I got a, a tip off that uh, California, we're doing okay, but New York is a mess. I'll never forget that message. And it was like, it is? What's going on there? Do you recall when it started to, oh my God, it's getting really bad here. Yeah, I think, you know, it's so funny because I was actually looking through my camera roll of photos to see when my last normal day out Mm. was And it was the first week of March. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was the last week that I took the subway. So it's been about two and a half months, Mm -hmm. which is crazy to think about because in a weird way, it's gone by quite quickly. So yeah, I would say I would say the last month of March, even I think the last time I went out, I was like, ooh, this is probably not a good idea, but I'm gonna go anyways. But yeah, so I think that was probably the last time that I was like, oh man, this is not great. Manhattan has a lot of cases, but where I'm at is not too bad. There's been a few people at Columbia, I think, who've tested positive. But it's been pretty contained in my area. But I think in lower income neighborhoods, like in South Brooklyn, certain places in Queens, I knew that it was going to spiral there. Are you doing online teaching? Is that how you have your classes? Yeah, yeah, it's all been online. They were very hesitant to make that decision, which I kind of appreciated um, because there was a lot of schools that were just instantly online. They kept telling us at the beginning, okay, the week before spring break will be online, then we're going to wait through spring break and kind of reevaluate. And by that point, I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of inevitable, but they were hesitant to fully make that decision because I think they knew that the quality of the classes would change. So yeah, we've been doing online since, I'm not even sure, since since whenever my spring break was. Maybe mid-March, maybe? Yeah, something like that, yeah. So have you been pretty much quarantined in your apartment? What's that been like? Yeah, um, for most of March, I was doing grocery deliveries just to be extra safe. And thankfully, I'm in a position where I can do that. And I really wasn't going out much. Now that the weather's turned a little bit nicer, I've been going out for walks in the park. And and everyone's very cautious. I mean, we all wear face masks. I don't really touch anything. I don't really even sit on benches. I mainly just walk. So, I mean, I, I stayed cocooned for a good few weeks where I like really, really was not going out. Like I wasn't even checking my mail, but I've been going out more often now. And I go to get my groceries in person now because I think 
a lot of the stores have adapted to a good system of making sure people are apart. They're directing traffic really well, so you're not bumping into people. I think businesses, at least in my area, have really adjusted quite well to the situation, and it makes everyone feel safer, both the people who are working there and I think the customers as well. The impression we have here in California is that, I mean, there were times when the streets were deserted in New York. Is that your experience? Yeah, it's pretty dead. I mean, I'm really in upper Manhattan, so I'm um, above Central Park. So it's not like I was around Times Square and, Mm. you know, I've seen photos of what Times Square looks like now and it's pretty empty. Here was always a little bit more calm than the rest of the city. But yeah, it definitely is different. I mean, I think the the biggest difference is just seeing all the shutdown businesses. You still see people walking, but it's very different than, you know, like things are boarded up. Things are like, it's just not there. So I think that's where you can tell the most difference. You still see people walking and, you know, when the weather's nice, people do go to the park and it's what you would imagine a normal May day would be kind of the beginning of summer. But it's really just, I think, the businesses that gives it a very, very different feel. The news reporting that was coming out of New York, Governor Cuomo's daily news conferences, boy, I mean, it was dark. You know, were you well aware of that? Um, what do you mean? Well, it just seemed like... You know, the hospitals are overwhelmed and there weren't enough resources to help people. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to answer just because I live near the university and I mean, it, it it's heartbreaking. Like I, I, every time the, you know, I live near a hospital. So every time seven o'clock hits and people start cheering like I want to burst into tears and sometimes I have so it is a very emotional situation I think New York is just I don't know it's just one of those places where you just you just love it and Mm -hmm. it's very sad when something happens and you just think about all the families that are losing loved ones all the people that are suffering in the hospitals so yeah I mean it it does feel very heavy and it does feel very serious. I think people are feeling that all over the country. I don't know that it's like specific to New York, but yeah, I mean, it is like, (laughs) I was watching like Andre Bocelli's concert for hope that he did in Italy when Italy was kind of at the height of the pandemic or, or very close to the height of the pandemic. And they kind of showed like a lot of the like worst hit places And the second New York popped up, I was like in tears. So yeah, I mean, it does feel, it feels terrible, but I think the whole situation's terrible. I don't know that it feels like especially different in New York. I just think it's just like, like the number, the magnitude of it. Cause you think, you know, you see the number of how many deaths, but then you think about, even if every person that died only had one family member, like that's double the number of people who are suffering. So that's a very challenging kind of thing to wrap your head around and you know it could be your neighbor it could be the person living above you or below you so yeah well Caitlin you know thank you very much for being with us here in this pivotal time in your life we really appreciate it it's fascinating to hear about your journey and 
we wish you, I wish you all the best. You, your training sounds like it's been excellent and I think you're going to do well. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for thinking of me too. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to journalist Caitlin Antonios for her insights into several UCI writing media programs, the Columbia University Master's Program in Investigative Journalism, in New York City during COVID-19. Caitlin graduated from UCI in June 19 and Manhattan's Columbia University last week. She just found out she starts in her first professional journalism job this summer with New York City's newest online newspaper, The City. Congratulations and good luck. If you'd like to hear an encore edition of my interview with Caitlin or any other edition of UCI Conversations since August last summer, my podcast website can be found at www.bostonmeyer.com. And I can also be reached anytime by email at kboss at kuci.org. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Now coming up next at 5 p.m. is Ash Kumra on Entrepreneur Nation, where the focus is on different tools to succeed in business. Stay tuned. And thank you again to Fred Kaplan for supplying all my show theme music from his excellent signifying piano CD. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. I encourage you to be safe, loving, and caring. God bless George Floyd, and God bless America. Good evening.